The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. From Charleston at the Social Coast Forum 2020, the keynote speaker is joining us on the American Shoreline Podcast. It is Sorelli Sutaria Patel, who is the director of the Center for Client Health and Equity. Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, Sorelli. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it was just awesome to hear your keynote this morning. And, you know, I think that what we really want to do on this show is introduce our audience to uh, this notion of uh, climate justice and uh, how uh, and what that means. So why don't, why don't you, what is climate justice? Climate justice means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, for me, from the American Public Health Association, we focus on the health portion of climate justice, which then looks at everybody's ability to achieve um, good health or good health status. And those injustices that are um, either institutionalized or have been put in place at some point um, that offer disadvantages to some populations over others, whether it's just the makeup of them, like children, who drink more more water and breathe in more air than the average adult. Or it could be something like um, a low-income community where there are structural differences that, um, you know, make it a little challenge, more challenging to escape a climate event. Hmm. So as we go forward as a society and we begin to confront the adjustments that will be required by climate change, uh, there's going to be actions taken and from your keynote address, I think there was a call here to a certain sensitivity and an understanding and an inclusiveness in the process of approaching this problem. Um, I'm interested in, this is part of the American Public Health Association, a national organization. Tell us about APHA's interest in the topic and in particular 
the Center for Climate, Health, and Equity that you lead? Sure. So APHA, um, actually, let me start back in, in the 1920s. Okay. All right. Take it way back. Deep cut. Way back, where um, the very first article published on this topic was by a few doctors who said, in 100 years, we're going to actually feel the health impacts of climate change if we don't do anything today. Wow. So we're wow. we're t- we're a hundred years out, it's, and we the are. The time has feeling. come. <laughs> yes, and like a lot of public health organizations, we tend to also agree that um, you know we are the first generation to feel the health impacts of climate change, and we are possibly the last generation that could do anything about it. Wow. And that's where APHA is rooted when we come when we come and face the climate and health issue. Um, we also um, are very focused on our membership, which is um, a host of public health professionals, researchers, doctors, nurses, etc. Um, and to really help that workforce understand the connection between climate change and health. And sometimes doing that also means that we have to um, work outside of our sector and talk to other sectors that are interested in this topic and just like this this conference. And um, really help people bridge the understanding between climate change and health because it's not usually a primary impact. It could be a secondary, tertiary, so forth um, of, of a climate event. Absolutely. So the, the APHA, the national organization at some point, creates a special division, the Center for Climate, Health, and Equity. Tell us when that happened, how that came about, and when you became the leader of that. Sure. So um, we just celebrated in November our first birthday. Um, Happy birthday. Thank you. Big numero uno. Yes. So we're really excited. It's very brand new. But APHA has been in this this space of climate and health for many, many years. We work with a lot of federal partners and other national organizations and our affiliate public health agencies um, to kind of elevate the issue. And now we're working towards acting on the issue. Right. So in 2017, we declared it the year of climate change and health, where every month we talked about a different topic within climate and health. So we had issues like transportation or energy or extreme weather, vulnerable populations, mental health and, you know, a couple more where we really just dove into each of those topics to help our members and our partners understand where they intersect with climate change. They may not grasp the whole the whole beast, but they do have some kind of connection to a very specific health impact that they're working on that's also related to climate change. And so at the end of the year, it was a year of education. At the end of the year, we said, well, what's next? So we asked our members and our partners and some of our funders to kind of understand what they need to now act on climate. And that's where the center kind of was born. Interesting. Yeah. And so uh, what are... so? what are the proposed actions like what where do where where do you act from here that's a great question so we did a needs assessment to kind of understand and this is very wonky needs assessment oh we love wonky (laughs) this is a very wonky show yeah we're good with wonky great well i got some wonkiness for you we did a needs assessment that captures where we need to go moving forward in terms of the climate and health dialogue to advance it from a dialogue to action. And the three things we learned is that there needs to be more training for the health and public health workforce to actually understand the connection, but also figure out what what tools are at their disposal so they can start talking to their communities they serve or their patients they serve 
to, to make those linkages to those communities and to those patients in a very sensitive way. The next thing we learned is that we need some kind of um, cohesion around this climate movement. There are a lot of groups working on it. There's a lot of messaging out there. <clears throat> and it would be really important for us to, to stay on point, stay on message without overcomplicating things. And then the third thing we learned is to really build capacity at the state and local level. So we're seeing this um, interesting trend in our affiliates, our state. Um, there's 54 state um, public health agencies across the country. <coughs> and we noticed that um, there is an, a, an increase over the last couple years in the need to um, work on climate change either as a priority or because it's of interest or they've just faced too many climate events to deny it anymore. And there, but there's a direct inverse correlation in terms of capacity. And that capacity could be because there isn't an FTE or a full-time employee there, or it could just be um, they don't have the funding, or it just could be they don't have the understanding within their existing infrastructure to work on these issues. So a lot to unpack there. Wow. What a great agenda. Um, Can and I, I ask a follow-up? I don't mean to interrupt. Please. But, you know, one of the things that I keep thinking about, and, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go somewhere, and if, you know, by all means, we can skirt around this, but um, I, I was interested in the Green New Deal as a document. You know, it's a thing that we discuss here. It, it, it popped up. It's na of national interest. It gets talked about in in as kind of a policy, I guess we could say objective or kind of, it. and what's interesting about it is that it it introduces the idea of intersectionality and um, our solution to, to adaptation, I suppose. And um, when you're talking about uh, public health, I really feel like there's a strong connection there between, hey, listen, guys, like when you're, when you're working on the problem, you gotta be thinking about these other factors and can you comment? I know I'm not asking a specific question other than your, for your for a comment, but like, would you comment on that and and bring us like where are we in understanding the interconnected nature of you know public health and climate and all you know social justice, climate justice, all of these things? Is this where are we at on this? That's a great question, and I think the answer is going to vary based on who you talk to. There's a lot of groups out there that are working on this very issue of the um, connecting organizations and groups with one another, connecting local groups to national groups and vice versa. Um, I think we still have a long way to go. I think there's a lot of um, good intentions out there to work on these issues. Um, but without us talking to one another, we're really just going to be solving part of the problem and not the whole problem. Well, let's let's see if we can help our audience uh, go a little deeper into understanding health risks that are associated with climate change. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of engineers out there, a lot of folks who design projects, and when we think of climate change, what's coming to mind is beach restoration and dune management. Maybe we're building wetlands and maybe we want living shorelines and oysters. That's kind of the field of discussion. And then along comes the American Health Associate, Public Health Association and your center who is saying, and guess what else is involved in climate change? It's public health. So 
when let's tell our audience a little bit about what are the health implications of a changing environment that come to mind for you as as a health professional sure there's there's several so heat i think is most ubiquitous all of us are experiencing heat Um, some of us are experiencing heat for longer periods of time and some of us are experiencing heat in parts of the country that um, we didn't really have before and then there's a whole idea of um you know, the heat melting ice caps and sea level rise, right? So that's also part of the problem. And what does that do for our health? Well, when you think about um, long periods of heat, extended periods of heat, you're really thinking about um, those people that are already predisposed to certain health conditions like cardiovascular or respiratory disease. And those folks, you're going to see an increase in um, emergency department visits because it's just something that their systems can't help. There's also some evidence showing that some types of medication interact differently with um, heat or prolonged heat wow. exposure. Really? Okay. Yeah, and and you know. Wow, this is fascinating. <laughs> it's I'm sort of cascading I, I, I in my mind. I would not have thought of that. Neither would okay, I. So medical, how medicines operate, vectors you mentioned in your. I did speech. I did so vectors, so bugs and ticks and um, you know mosquitoes. So we're seeing a lot of these um, vector-borne, vector-carrying um, insects um, traveling further and living longer because the the um, the warmer temperatures, the warmer seasons are longer. But we're also seeing them because um, they're standing water from residual flooding or you know um, extra downpour, and they're they're breeding grounds. And so we're seeing new diseases emerge, like Zika, and then we're seeing reoccurring diseases, you know, reemerging diseases come back, like um, West Nile or um, Lyme, disease, Lyme disease. So those are really, really dangerous. And, and because they're happening in new geographies, we're also seeing people less aware of the risk and less prepared to do anything about wow. it. You know, and, so when you think of flood risk and people drowning, people are like, okay, that's clearly... But it's, it's, it's the vectors and the disease and the water. And it's the other thing that struck me in your opening remarks and uh, as the keynote was the mental health implications of climate change. And here's another thing that I hadn't thought of that. And w- when you explained it, help our listeners understand why climate change presents a challenge in the mental health of the community. Sure. So climate change is very personal and very emotional because it affects us where we live, work, play, worship. It affects us um, as a as an individual, but also as a community. And what we're seeing is um, the mental health um, impacts are lasting. So they happen in the short term, and that's when we often get the most resources to deal with them. But they're also happening more in the long term. So if you think about in the short term, you see a wildfire or flooding, and um, you know a lot of community members may experience PTSD or um, anxiety or depression. In fact, there it's said um, up to twenty-five to fifty percent of community members experience one of these or a combination. Wow! And then, if you look um, more chronically, there are issues with um, sea level rise, for instance, that could cause um, stress to a family or community in terms of what's going to happen to my house, how am I going to get to work and then pay for food or dinner, um, those types of issues. And then there's the gradual, right? So it's where um, 
you know, the infrastructure that once was put in place to protect us from rising sea level, for example, may be degrading and there's no investment or no funds coming in to repair it in a timely manner. And that also causes some type of chronic stress. I've seen that happen. And, and it, there, it, there's a sense of fear that can arise. Is yeah. that, are we capable of responding to this challenge? I see it coming toward me. I don't see the community able to come to a solution. Uh, it's uh, it, it unsettling because, as you said, it strikes people in where they live, work, and worship. And that's as, that's very personal and is a mental health issue that I don't think a lot of people think about when they think of climate change. Think of, well, big hurricanes. Yeah, but what about the implication of that for people who've been subjected to this level of dislocation and trauma? Um, that reverberates through the community. Uh, so I think the what you're trying to do, and it was really interesting to see this be the keynote. I thought the public health implications of climate change, somebody's thinking here, this is really good. Uh, but there was another part of your opening remarks that I want to open the door to. And it has to do with how we're going to respond as a community. We know people are going to cook up different ideas. We're going to try to t tackle things. We're going to try to change stuff. We're going to change land management, all of the discussions that are going on. And I just felt like one of the things you said to the group, as you move forward and craft solutions, equity is a critical element to how that has to get done. You talked about procedural equity, distributive equity, contextual equity, about vulnerable communities. It's about race and social class in America. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a pointed charge and I think worthy. Could you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I look at equity through the health equity lens. And to me, that really means that everyone should have access to health, to whatever they need to achieve good health. And that means some people, some communities require some more help, some more resources to actually get there. So when we talk about the three types of equity that you just said, um, it really talks to the inclusion of um, individuals at the table or at the decision-making point. It talks to how we need to think about the distribution of both the benefits but also the risks to decisions, the unintended risks. I don't think anyone goes out there to say, you know, let's, let's only help some and not others. There's unintended consequences to everything. And then it also talks about um, fairness and giving back power to communities. Any, every community should have a voice and should be able to be at the table to represent their own needs and not necessarily have somebody else thinking for them because they won't be able to fully grasp what that community member does. And the thing that um, is most striking is that, you know, as, as you know, a public health person or as a researcher or as a, um, a planner, we go in as experts in our respective fields, but we also have to stop and recognize that community members bring a level of expertise as well. Their lived experience is just as valuable to finding a solution as our degrees are. Yeah, I kind of caught that, and uh, it was sort of an implication of, I think, uh, the discussion and the talk that you gave about this notion of wisdom that's embedded in indigenous communities, the necessity of 
not just sort of letting them comment on what you're doing, but building the solution with their central presence in the dialogue. It's sort of a higher calling than simply let them know you're having a meeting about the new structure you're going to plan in their neighborhood. Uh, why don't you ask them if they want a structure in their neighborhood or something? Can you can you talk about that about the necessity and why is it important that that level of engagement occur? Why is that a mental health or a, a health issue? Yeah, I would even take it a step further okay. and and start off with what are the concerns of that particular community? Because they may not be the same, or they may be. But it's finding that common ground to work together. And so if you go into a community and say, you know, we need um, managed retreat, that might be, um, you know, a, a, ne- a necessary step. But if that community's needs are simply to have better street lights, so they feel more comfortable for their kids to come home, and a little bit more infrastructure so that there is application of multimodal transportation, then, you know, that's where you, you kind of have to start. You have to meet in the, in the common ground. You have to, you, you really need to understand the community. And like I said um, earlier, it's, you know, one community, you only know one community and every community has its nuances and differences. And um, oftentimes some really great planning and some really great interventions um, tend to flop because we're not listening to other communities that they're supposed to serve. What would you say to someone who was uh, sitting here and say, yeah, but but really, like, we have to respond to this potentially cataclysmic event in the history of, of human beings, and you're going to sit there and say, yeah, but, but, the, but the public health consequences, tell us why we need to put up in our our slate of like top priorities public health as as a consideration as we adapt sure i i know that's like super broad like yeah it's health i mean but like for those of us that don't talk about public health all every day (laughs) um help us get there absolutely i health is um is going to be um center health of, of all of these climate impacts, regardless of what exactly, you know, is happening in your backyard, whether it's flooding or heat or vectors, it really, um, there will be health consequences to it. Um, our ability to adapt and possibly even mitigate so we don't have to um, keep adapting um, is crucial to the conversation. And I wouldn't say why, I would say how. I think people are prime. I think people understand the health message above a lot of other messages because it hits home. Your child may be um, predisposed to asthma. Do you really want them out there when there's smog and um, when there's high heat days? Um, And so using, um, using channels that are already available have proven to be very helpful. So for instance, using a faith-based leader or a community leader, somebody trusted within the community to help share those messages. So you're not always having to build trust from the ground up, but really using um, a conduit between the community members you're serving and a trusted voice. And also um, building that relationship with that, whether it's a a religious organization or a community-based organization. And, And that way, there's the, the credibility of the science there, but then there's also the heart of the community there having the conversation with everyone. I don't think it's that far-fetched here. 
I mean, the notion is, like, what is the point of adapting and and doing better work responding to the challenge of climate change? Is it really just about better protected apartments and houses? Is that what the point of all this is? Or is it about the fabric of the community and the human beings, which would be the top priority in, in an adaptation? We're talking about the implications for our citizens and our fellow citizens and our whether in your country or your community or your county or your state or your the world i mean this is what it's about isn't it we we're all trying to live happy healthy lives and thinking about this challenge from a health perspective it sort of persuaded me this isn't just sort of a something to consider it's sort of like the whole point it's the ball game <laughs> it's like this should be the point of the whole thing is that kind of am i going too far well, you're talking to a health person, <laughs> so you're not going too far. But also recognizing that the community infrastructure and, and building some um, resiliency measures, adaptation measures, all contribute to ac- you know accessing your fullest health potential. So I talked about um, the social determinants of health or the mm-hmm. non-clinical determinants of health, and that makes up 80% of how we achieve good health. Right. And so if we don't have the roads and infrastructure, we don't have access to medical care or we don't have access to an income, right. livable income, I should say. I wrote them down. Uh, somebody was taking good notes. I really loved your presentation. But the health equity factors, education, food and environment, employment, medical care, income, outdoor environment, housing, community safety, transportation, our health is not just defined on whether or not we have pneumonia or are we getting a pill. It's about the whole human being here is kind of the call. I loved this phrase. I wrote this phrase down, and it really caught my attention. I'd never heard it before. You said we need to attain psychosocial resiliency. Woo. When we're talking about resilience and we're talking about psychological and social health was a, a challenging. T- tell us about that. Sure. So oftentimes we talk about mental illness, yeah. right? Um, but the what is what's the opposite of mental illness? That's the ability to achieve mental wellness, hmm. right? And that mm-hmm. can't happen in isolation. We're wired that way. So we talk about psychosocial resilience. Hmm. And in, in the context of climate change, we've seen a lot of mental health professionals go out into communities to build psychosocial resilience before, during, and after, and long-term after. Really? Yeah, and it's fascinating because um, there's a few things happening in a lot of communities where um, if you can't name a mental illness or um, a symptom, then you really can't seek help. Right, it's got to be in the DSM for manual or whatever it's called. Well, that's for your insurance. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think what, what if I, if I may, I just, yeah. I'm going to just, I, by the way, I find this to be just absolutely fascinating, but I, I think what, what she's saying is that if you don't know what depression is, or if you don't have a word for it, you're not going to be a you're yeah you you might not be aware to even address it at all or be empowered to address it uh, address it at all so i think that there is anyway is that right absolutely and also uh, recognizing the symptoms in others so in your parents or in your children or your neighbors and just recognizing what it is what it could look like and you know the gravity of it you know if left untreated 
it causes a lot of pain, not just for that person, but the person that they, mm. you know, the, the community that they surround, that surround them. And then the other thing with this building psychosocial resilience um, strategy is, is it offers connections within the community. I mentioned faith-based community yes. leaders often are the point of contact because these are the folks that are seen on a weekly, if not more, basis. And they offer a sense of comfort and understanding through religion. And they they can um, also point members of the community when they feel a little shy or, you know, maybe a little taboo to talk about with others. Um, they can point them to resources, some of which are um, already available and you don't have to pay extra for because they're, you know, through tax dollars, but sometimes they're through, you know, just other community services and there's support groups and a whole host of resources that could be offered. And so going into communities before a disaster hits Mm -hmm. um, can truly help that community bounce back or at least recognize the challenges that, um, that come with mental health and disaster. Reinforcing the community fabric, the institutions that, uh, reach out to the isolated, the, you talked about vulnerable populations, the elderly, children, sick community, I mean, to, to prepare for this stress and to reinforce those bonds. I mean, it seems so uh, straightforward and obvious once you explain it, that if we're going to do well in response to this changing condition, um, we have to look out for each other. It's really that understanding health means investing in the institutions and the community fabric and all of the stuff that makes these towns, it makes our communities re- healthy and lovely and places we like. Is that kind of the, I'm trying to. No, that's that's absolutely head on. And, and it comes back to the social determinants of health, the non-clinical things that, help us become healthy, right? So having social cohesion through transportation systems or open spaces or, you know, the laundry list of other things that can that can help you be healthy, but it's also it's not just your physical health, it's not the pneumonia. Right. It's it's your mental your ability to achieve mental wellness. Hmm. So I I'm familiar with if the city say Pinellas County, Florida is in the middle of a big resiliency RFQ where they're going to hire a bunch of technical people to help them evaluate the risk to their community and come up with strategies. And I'm familiar with these, how local governments engage the services to think about, say, flood risk or storm risk or the physical things. How would a city or a county or a community reach out and engage? I, I didn't even know how this works. To, to to look at the so, so, psychosocial resiliency of their community and begin to strengthen that. How how is that done in the community that you're in as a health professional? How do health professionals do this? I mean, is that do you, you kind of get what I'm saying? I, I don't even know how you would start. Sure, I, it's tricky. So. Like I said, every community is different. Some communities may be a little bit further along than others. Um, there's the health department, local health department. Um, I think Florida um, serves as a state health department, but there are all their um, regional, local, regional okay. health departments are an extension of the state, um, and they can be they can serve as a good resource. We also have a Florida Public Health Association. 
And um, and then there's national associations like um, the American Psychological Association that's doing a lot of work on this. There are um, other groups that also focus strictly on um, mental health and climate change and disaster preparedness. There's also the preparedness side of things. So first responders also may have some resources or um, pointers to how folks can in the community can get um, help or um, point them to resources. Great. So when the when the when a community is advancing their understanding of physical resiliency and storm surge stuff, is it? I guess it would it would be great if the local resiliency planners were engaged with their health department and looking at this socio psychological framework at the same time and trying to put that into the mix of the community discussion. Um, has there been a community, when you look around and, and see this attempt being made, trying to raise raise the awareness of it, is there are there examples that you are just really proud of, of how they've turned out, or are we still very much in the formative stages of this integration you're calling for? From, from my knowledge, I think we're in the... Um, in the beginning stages of recognizing it and calling it out. Okay. Um, CDC has um, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has a program called BRACE, which is Building Resilience Against Climate Effects. And they have grantees across the country at the state and local health department level working on adaptation planning from the health perspective. Really? Yes. And one of the stages that they go through is um, identifying vulnerable populations and vulnerabilities in the communities that they're going to serve. So we've put out a lot of um, information and started the dialogue with these grantees, but also with other health departments that are looking to create adaptation plans. So the program framework is starting to emerge. The CDC saw that BRACE, and could you tell tell our audience again what that stood for? Sure. BRACE stands for Building Resilience Against Climate Effects. Okay, so that's a Googleable thing, CDC, the BRACE program, to look at an emerging framework to put this higher in the consciousness and planning objectives. We came across a guy at the Florida Shore and Beach Preservation Association from the Mott Marine Lab. I think it's uh, he's a site now, Harbor Branch uh, Marine Lab, and I think it's, man, what is it, South Florida, University of South Florida, uh, who is a, he's a, he's a specialist in harmful algal blooms and an expert on dinoflagellates and tiny little algae creatures that are, that are causing harmful algal blooms on the Florida coast, which have significant health implications. Uh, because they release airborne toxins for vulnerable populations. He explained this whole universe of research that as a scientist who's a biologist in, in, in water algae, right, the university is now integrating health analysis into their biology program to understand these critters. And they believe that there is a chance that there are significant health correlation effects, including uh, liver dysfunction and and death because of this toxin stuff. So it was the only other place I came across, you know, a, a place where public health had entered this realm is, have you heard about this particular potential? It's associated with climate change, but it's multifactorial. But 
harmful algal blooms? Has that come up in the discussion uh, that you're involved in? It sure has. Um, harmful algal blooms often bloom when it's warmer and it affects the seafood or shellfish and then we consume it and that can harm us that way. It could right. harm us from bathing in it, um, in those waters. And so we see that happening and it's a lot of, um, a lot of health departments are actually addressing it through their adaptation planning. Wow. Well, that's a great show and y'all should go back. That was one of Peter's shows that he did at the Florida Shore and Beach uh, Preservation Association back in September of last year. Great uh, set of shows. But bringing this back here, I'm curious, you know, uh, we here on the American shoreline are often uh, faced with uh, major events. Hurricanes come to mind. Um, and in an event like that where, you know, we we saw uh, just this over the past couple of years in, in Florida in particular. And we did a show uh, with our good friend Steve Mercer uh, from North Carolina, just just north of us right here. Um Wilmington, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, clearly these storms produced uh, trauma for the communities that they directly impacted. And in talking to Steve, and uh, he actually had one of his employees on who lost his home, and, um, you know, Steve was talking about how he was harvesting chickens uh, from his farm and bringing them to his neighbors to feed them. And... You know, on the, on the one hand, you see this psychological trauma. And on the other hand, you see the community. Steve uh, was supporting his, his friend, um, bringing him food, genuinely concerned with his well-being. Um, and I, I see a potential for an opportunity in climate change. And here we are at the Social Coast Forum. I, I very much have a glass half full uh, vibe in this place. Um, but obviously we have a lot of work to do. You say we're at the very beginning of this process, but tell us a little bit about how you see the, your visioning of the future. Are we moving to a, a, a healthier and a more like verdant society uh, because, we are, because we have an opportunity now in, in our response to the realities of the climate crisis to rethink and maybe reform our understanding of public health? The optimist in me says yes. I think it's a great opportunity to re-envision what, what health should look like, what communities, healthy communities should look like and what they should all have so that there's a baseline of services, of infrastructure, of access points for everyone to, to get. Um, reality is, We've lived in a, in a country with um, institutionalized racism and inequities, and it's, it's not that easy to fix with an adaptation plan. Right. And I think if you, uh, the folks in New Orleans who would talk about the Ninth Ward and what happened after Katrina and the loss of an entire community in that city, uh, and in the folks that I've talked to from New Orleans, uh, considered that a cornerstone community of the of the great city of New Orleans. It's the historic African American population. It is where all the musicians arose from. It is the people who serve that community. It was rich and deep. And after Katrina, it wasn't 
rebuilt and there's been efforts to do it, of course, kind of through the private sector and things. But that's what we're talking about in terms of being aware of the social and racial issues that arise in these storm events, that they don't equally, the capacity to come back is not equal is what I think you said, was we have to pay attention to the equity and how this is going to do to maintain the fabrics of our communities. So there's a racial, an important racial consideration here that, uh, that needs to be part of the discussion, it sounds like. Absolutely. Um, some of the, um, when I say institutional racism or mm-hmm. environmental racism is another term that comes up because environmental justice doesn't really quite cover it. Mm-hmm. Right. We're talking about um, laws and policies put into place that dis- disadvantage communities from the start. Babies are born into these communities and, you know, they may be too close to the water. They may be too close to a highway and being exposed to the, you know, the car exhaustion. It could be, um, it could be any, any number of things, downwind from a factory. And, and these things really shape the person's ability to be, be healthy. And then you add these climate events, you add the heat. So when you're close to the water and um, downwind from a factory and um, less than a mile away from a major highway, you have all these air pollution factors, you have the standing water, and then you might be, you know, in three, four, five days of 100, um, 100 degree temperature. What's going to happen? That's going to weigh down those chemicals, and those those chemicals will be at the ground. That's where your children are. So some communities are going to be upstream of all this, and right. in those hundred day, you know, hundred degree days, they're not going. They're going to feel the heat, but they're not going to feel the heat the same right. way. So there's certain things that just need to be um, looked at. There's also um, the indigenous community, right? Indigenous populations. There's been so many laws and regulations put in place that put them at a, a grave disadvantage. Um, and that's maybe another podcast in and of itself, but there, it's just to no recognize. No question about it. Right. And, and, and I just had to mention because um, oftentimes we overlook indigenous um, communities, tribal communities. Um, they're probably facing it the worst, especially if you look in places in Alaska. Barrow, Alaska is, you know, is suffering quite a bit. There's places in the Dakotas that's also being hit pretty hard. Um, harmful algal blooms is definitely one of the issues that they're facing. Yeah. And in, uh, in, the, in the Mississippi River Delta, the loss of Al Dijon-Charel, I think is... Uh, John Charles kind of but it's an indigenous pronunciation historically indigenous community that is being relocated yeah in the Alaska uh, coastal communities the indigenous communities there uh, are focus of a great deal of attention and money at the moment which I think is great to see uh, the programmatic response to the threat to these communities but um, I'm beginning to understand why this is called the Center for Climate Health and Equity. It's this close relationship between this major force of, that is going to affect society and communities and the health implications and fallout of that and the equity implications that are going to fall out of that. And putting that triangle together of climate and health and equity and asking the practitioners of the trade to pay attention as this response begins to take shape, build it into the thinking, is such an important step. 
rather than coming 10 years down the road and saying, you know, you didn't think about the social, racial equity or the health implications of this, but to be at this conference and to be speaking to resiliency planners and local officials and federal folks and saying, this is important now, I think is a great service to the community. Well done. Thank you. Really well done. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the keynote speaker at the Social Coast Forum 2020 from Charleston, South Carolina, Sorelli Sitaria Patel, the director of the Center for Climate Health and Equity. What a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the American Shoreline Podcast. We'd love to follow your work. Let us know how things go. We'd love to keep up with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Someone who's loved you is dying.